0: Hey folks, this is Screen Watching My Name, Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. I'll talk to him in a moment, I'll ask how he is and probably pay as much attention there as I usually do. But folks, this is a very big weekend for me in that I'm fortunate to live in a state where, guys, three-day weekend, this is two weekends in a row where there's nothing but just sitting around and swilling beer and watching telly. What an exciting time to be me. Folks, Stick around for that, and you know it'll be a relaxed tone for me for this week's podcast, is what I'm suggesting. Uh, Simon Foster, he's probably got reviews of something he's been watching. Oh, I, I guess talk about things I've been watching. I guess that's the thing we do here. Gosh, it's it's a it's it's a relaxed podcast, folks. This is screen watching. Stick around. Uh, there's actually some stuff coming up. I promise, folks. So we see you then. This is not like TV on the
1: better. Teacher, mother, secret lover.
0: What? That's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Folks, this is screen watching the podcast, best described as being recorded in a gangster's paradise. My name is Dan Barrett, joined by Mister Simon Foster. Mister Simon Foster, how are you doing today? Oh,
1: look, sad that Coolio's left us. uh, Gangster's Paradise was a great. What?
0: Coolio's died. What? Oh, what?
1: what? What a reference that was. Yes, I know. Gangster's Paradise from the great film Dangerous Minds, which I actually saw in a uh, downstairs multiplex in uh, New York City back in 1995. I was amongst the milieu there. So it was um, it was a thrill. Uh, R.O.P. Coolio. I'm very well, Dan Barrett. Hope you're very well. You do sound like you've uh, started your holidays early coming out of the
0: gates. Very relaxed. Well, look, frankly, if we're going to recount our experiences of watching gangster, oh, sorry, Dangerous Minds starring Michelle Pfeiffer and other people, who else was in that film? Anyone of note? Uh, it was the
1: mid-90s, probably that guy from Three Men and a Baby, Philip. What was his name? Who was the cop in Three Men and a Baby?
0: Anyway, it doesn't matter. Do go on. Uh, I mean, I'm suddenly just questioning my entire Three Men and a Baby <laughs> fandom that I can't just recall that off the top of my head. Uh, I mean, I recall seeing the Great Dangerous Minds film. <laughs> Great film. Uh, in I think it was as it was meant to be seen at the Cineplex in Carindale, a suburb of Brisbane. Wow. Just on a Saturday night with my mates because I was 15 Very years street. old. That's what you do. Totally street. Very straight.
1: Street. You were 15 years old in 95. Oh, there's a bit of an insight. I was in my, oh, I don't want to do that, 20s. Early 30s. 20s. <laughs> I just come back from the war. Um, How are you doing? (laughs) Everything's good. We have got a very busy show this week. Reviews of some uh, very talked about um, titles that are dropping across our streaming platform. Andrew Dominic's Blonde. Um, We have got a new horror film Smile and we've got a fun little show called See How They Run which is in cinemas now. That's just my movies and you, you and your TV stuff is crazy this week.
0: Uh, I wouldn't say crazy, but there's two. Uh, there's one film, uh, one series that I think people will be fairly keen to at least sort of get across. That is a remake of the Anne Rice novel, Interview with the Vampire. People may know there was a film made of this very book back in the early 90s. Yes. Yeah. Yes, uh, and yes. also there's a TV series that nobody's ever heard of before. And after I review this, you'll probably never hear anyone reference it again. It's called Uh-oh. Panhandle. It's on Stan. And we'll have a bit of a chat about that. Can't wait to hear about that. Mm. But anyway, folks, I think that the best thing we can do right now is to dive into some reviews. And at the end of that, we'll have a section in the middle of the podcast, which we call the middle bit. And you will not believe why we call it that. It stinks. So streaming now on Netflix is a Marilyn Monroe biopic sort of a thing called Blonde. Simon, tell us all about it. Oh boy,
1: Uh, the blowback against director Andrew Dominic's riff on the Marilyn Monroe Mystique has been swift. And fairly vitriolic, he hasn't helped his cause with some ill-judged interview comments, which I want to acknowledge, but let's put that aside and judge the art and not the artist at this stage, at least for this review anyway. Now, uh, Dominique has spent the best part of a decade writing his adaptation of Joyce Carol Oates' novel, or as she calls it, fictional biography. Um, It's a mighty 700-plus pager that reinterprets the real-world celebrity of Marilyn Monroe as as a case study, I guess, in abuse and mental torment and workplace exploitation Hollywood and in one many of the many shocking sequences in this uh, Washington DC they discovered a very public and pliable goddess figure in the industrially crafted form of quote-unquote Marilyn Monroe deciding very early on that the impact upon the emotionally fragile woman that was Norma Jean Baker was inconsequential. And that's the version of the Monroe mythology that Dominique is undertaking in this very bold, occasionally brilliant, sometimes infuriating two-and-a-half-hour wallow in fame deconstruction. It's a film full of people who, like the American public since Monroe first appeared on screen in Don't Bother to Knock, fall willingly and blindly in love with false idols – in tearing down the carefully manufactured facade that was Marilyn Monroe, uh, Dominique is also merciless in his depiction of baseball great Joe DiMaggio, played by Bobby Carnival, and President JFK, played by Casper Phillips, and both fellow icons of America's golden post-war years. Enduring the tortuous mental deterioration as Andrew Dominic's Marilyn is Anna um, Anna Arme, and the actress is both entirely at one with the director's vision, and more often than not, significantly better than it. While there are legitimate issues that one may have with Dominic's style, or structure, or perceived intent, there can be no reservations as to the bravery and depth of character that D'Armay demands of herself. Physically, she is cinematically luminous as Monroe at her most photogenic, while also offering a stark portrayal of an emotionally incomplete and constantly deteriorating victim of lifelong abuse and loneliness. The Marilyn Monroe biopic that captures her business acumen and comic timing and acting prowess, aspects of her life that critics have noticed is absent from Blonde, is another film entirely. Dominique's Very ambitious work is the story of what the American entertainment industry is willing to do to draw every last drop of humanity out of those it selects to exploit. It is a sad, bitter, horrible tale, which is not how those invested in her legend want to see Marilyn portrayed, but it is a version of her life that is as important in its telling as the perpetuation of her screen goddess myth. It's on Netflix right now.
0: Yeah, I'm keen to check this one out, uh, mostly because everything I really know about Marilyn Monroe came from that episode of Quantum Leap where Sam Beckett travelled back in time and just kept <laughs> her walking.
1: Yeah, look, she's uh, obviously one of the great sort of entertainment industry icons, but as has emerged over the years, uh, it wasn't a happy life for her. And it was that not a happy life that Dominic's really drills down on in this Um yeah, and he didn't do himself any favours with some ridiculous comments that I don't want to repeat here. But he's um, he's a fine filmmaker, and he comes at this from a, a unique, if somewhat um, challenging, angle. Let's say.
0: Hey Simon, can I talk about a TV show that's got a fair bit of bite to it? It's called Interview with the Vampire. Nice. Simon Foster, you would have you've at least seen the movie, if not read the book. Would that be correct?
1: Uh, I was right there when the book came out. I didn't read it. Certainly saw this is
0: because you cannot read.
1: <laughs> well, I wasn't in. Didn't have pictures in it. Um, yes, yeah, so I saw the movie. Uh, it was quite a big deal back in my sort of uh, teenage, twenty-ish years.
0: Yeah, so I remember the film came out. So it was what ninety-two. I'm going to say. So I would have been a sprightly twelve-year-old at that point. Huge fuss
1: about Cruise being cast in the film. He was he was Mr. Top Gun at that stage, and for him to come out as Lestat um, in this in this film was had everyone rattled.
0: Apparently, the film came out in 94, so just one year before The Great Dangerous Minds was released. Sure, <laughs> oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of controversy about Tom Cruise being cast, and Anne Rice was very vocal, saying that wasn't her list stats. But I think she was actually generally quite happy with his portrayal uh, at the end of it. But ultimately, there had been a lot of, you know, scuttlebutt prior to the film coming out. Now, Simon, that film... I don't necessarily want to say that it was a film that came out with a lot of scorn and dislike I think that it was generally reasonably okay received
1: it had a lot of prestige about it it had Neil Jordan directing and he was coming yeah. off some well received films and it had a, a a hot cast with Banderas and Pitt and a young Kirsten Dunst on the scenes so, uh, yes Kirsten Dunst um, yeah so it, it you're right it, it got don't people forget talking the great Christian sure. Slater oh of course in there Christian Slater
0: yeah uh, so yeah hot cast I think that you know Production-wise, it was generally considered to be quite good. And I know that I knew a lot of goth people sort of during my teenage years. And like they were all very pro Interview with a Vampire. Like, it became a seminal text. Mm. So, cut to 2022. We've got a whole bunch of premium TV shows being made. We've got AMC looking in the vault going, you know what? We could probably do ourselves an Interview with a Vampire TV show. So, they, you know, dusted off the book, read what it was all about, and said, yeah, let's do this. Lo and behold, brand new adaptation of it. Now, sadly, Anne Rice didn't live to see the release of the series, so I don't know how much of it she saw prior to her death, which was not long ago, it was really just a matter of months ago, so she may well have seen some footage that was already in the can by the time, you know, she did pass. I think she would have been, I mean, look, I haven't read the book, I don't know Anne Rice particularly well, Um, particularly well, I mean, you know, we were casual acquaintances at best. (laughs) But ultimately, Simon, I think she'd probably be pretty happy with this. And, you know, I can't imagine there'd be many fans of the series of books known as the Vampire Chronicles that aren't really enthused by this. So the brand new TV series, its it does something which I love, which is that it's found a role for Eric Bogosian to be in our TV show that I'm watching. Good. Okay? Automatically, big ticks there, because I'm obsessed with Eric Bogosian.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I would go so far as to say... Talk Radio is one of the great unsung films of its time, an Oliver Stone film that nobody talks of now,
0: which he gives an incredible one-man performance in. Well, people talk of that film, but only in the context of, hey, do you know who Eric Bogosian is? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. But also, I mean, Eric Bogosian, I think, is a face that people know by face. Like, he's been in so many things over the years. I mean, he was in Law and Order, the captain For a little while i think on svu for like three or four seasons so Mm. he's certainly a known face and people absolutely know who he is when you see him but i would imagine that outside of our very refined listenership people probably don't know eric Bogosian so much okay so you've got him coming back and he's playing the role that uh, christian slater played in the movie so daniel Malloy, his version of it because eric Bogosian's a much older man than christian slater was at the time so i don't know how this aligns with the book exactly but Uh, The Molloy character in this, he's a older, more grizzled journalist. He's sort of at the tail end of his career as opposed to at the beginning, like Christian Slater would have been back in the day. So he plays a rock and roll sort of a journal of sorts, uh, sort of Anthony Bourdain type, if Anthony Bourdain was a journalist and, you know, still alive. Anyway, he, he plays that sort of a character. And at the very beginning, you see him watching TV and he's watching a TV commercial for himself. So what I think he's doing at the stage of his life is he's hosting one of those online masterclasses that you can do. I think that's what's going on, but they don't really reveal exactly what that T V ad's for. He just changes the channel and watches something yeah, else. I get it. yeah. But it's a great way to be introduced to him as a character. And he's very much someone who is like, you know, I used to work in newsrooms and uh, now people like me aren't the ones that are making the news anymore like he's talking about talking about the demise of the news industry as it really stood and where journalists needs to be heading in the future so that's kind of laying the groundwork a little bit for the fact that this guy he's not really working for a major publication anymore he's definitely out there by himself and you get the feeling that he's probably writing a couple of books and selling those but he's maybe not necessarily working for the new york times or anything as he may have once of earlier in his career so anyway, he's been sent this message from a guy that he'd interviewed early in his career. And it's a, wait for it, a vampire. <laughs> and he's been given the opportunities to interview him again. So the previous interview had taken place, I said, 50 years ago. So we're thinking in the very early 70s. And it's a guy that he's got some experience with. And he's, as the two of them meet, and it's kind of interesting. It kind of feels a little bit like... Uh, that HBO series in treatment where you've got like two people as a two hand as like they're going through their emotional baggage. And it kind of feels a little bit like one of those sort of setups, but basically the tool then comes to the interview and say, Hey, look, I've got this pile of tapes that we did and you listen to them and the general consensus amongst the two of them is that they were both inexperienced and not really quite ready for what an interview like that really should be so they want to correct the mistake of 50 years ago and have a proper interview where the two of them really are coming to the table with some real honesty and just uh, you know a, a real sort of solid experience they want out of this And I think that's kind of an interesting framework. They're not coming at it as people that have met for the very first time and is like, oh, you're a vampire, you say. And he scratches his chin a little bit as he struggles to believe that this vampire is telling the truth. But really, the Daniel Molloy character is coming at it with the absolute understanding that this guy is a vampire, And also, you do see on his neck a little bit of a bite going on. So, you know, that sort of suggests something. There's a bit of a suggestion there may have been a uh, physical engagement amongst the two of them. That's not Mm -hmm. just the neck thing, but maybe it's also the neck thing. Because what I think is really interesting about this uh, version of it is, much like in the movie, it's told largely through flashbacks. Okay? But you do see in the first episode, as he's talking about how he became a vampire, by the way, of a vampire named Lestat not played by tom cruise anymore but instead played by an australian actor and fantastically still keeps a bit of his australian accent in there uh so it's sam reed sam reed who people may have seen in the newsreader which was the abc series from Uh, last year early this year it was okay yeah uh wildly praised but you know i think you know just quite good but anyway, he's a Ness, and I think he's really quite solid, and I think physically maybe fits the ideal of Lestat a little bit more than the Tom Cruise uh, version of it. But anyway, the, the vampire that uh, is retelling the story, uh, he is... Um, well, first of all, just actor-wise, uh, Jacob Anderson, who people may know as playing... I think the character was named Grey Worm in Game of Thrones. Uh, he was a, You'll certainly know the face, but people will be like... Eric Boghossian, that guy. I know these faces. But anyway, the other guy's from Game of Thrones. You certainly know who he is, except for you, Simon, who hasn't really watched much Game of Thrones. Never seen Game of Thrones. Very disappointing. But anyway, the change that's really quite different is that there's a lot of gay sex taking place. Because the thing thing with the whole vampire thing is that there's a strong sexuality to it all. And back in 1994, there wasn't the insinuation that Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise are having sex anywhere. There was just-
1: I, I would argue that, and this is pointed out by Norm MacDonald in one of his famous um, Saturday Night news update sequences, uh, word on the new interview with a vampire film, not gay enough. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, classic Norm. But the thing is, like, not gay enough is basically my understanding of where the book is and where the TV series definitely takes it. Uh, things get very gay, and that's fine because... It needs to be there if you're playing around with vampires and two dudes necking. They do more than necking in this, Simon. I bet they do, yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, I think that if you are predisposed to want to see an interview with the Vampire TV series, check this out. I don't think you're going to be particularly disappointed. I think you're probably there for the entire run of series. And what's probably important to keep a note with all of this is that this is the beginning of AMC trying to find a hole to plug their... Uh, waning Walking Dead audience. So they've still got a whole bunch of Walking Dead spin-offs they've got coming as that original Mothership series comes to an end. But they're looking to supplant that. And so I think they're looking at doubling down on the Anne Rice universe she's created here. They've got more series planned beyond just an interview with the vampire and the vamp- they want to explore the vampire chronicles. But then also there was a series, I want to say it's Mayfair of Witches, which is another book series oh, yeah, that they're also up, doing a series and uh, Alexandra Daddario is going to be the star of that. So yes did you that. get
1: the information this morning that AMC Plus are launching a, a whole raft of
0: apps? Oh, okay, well, let's talk about what that is in a second. But yeah, basically, okay. interview with the vampire, check that out. Let's okay. go into what you were talking about, Simon, which is AMC Plus, when it launched in Australia about almost a year ago. Yeah, I a year ago, yep. Yeah. Uh, basically, they launched as an Amazon channel and an Apple TV Plus channel. Uh, You obviously would have learned about this prior to the media release appearing in your inbox, Simon, if you'd read my newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. Find out at alwaysbewatching.com. But basically what's happened is uh, they launched as channels, which means that you need to open up your Amazon app and then subscribe to this through Amazon, and then you can only watch it through the Amazon app. Same with Apple TV. If you own an Apple TV, you could then access channels or do it through your phone as well. There's an Apple TV app. And you can subscribe to it through that way. And then you can only watch it through the Apple TV app. So it's it was always a bit clunky. But now they've ded- launched a dedicated app. So you can now load up the app and you can access your AMC+. Plus. And in the same way that AMC Plus operated through channels, as AMC Plus is launched here in Australia, you can get not only just AMC Plus, but a subscription to AMC Plus for the same price. It also gets you access to the entire Shutter catalog and also Acorn TV. So yeah. both of those are very robust platforms. AMC Plus is maybe a little bit light on the depth of library, but as you and I have described a number of times, Simon, all of AMC Plus's series have all been exceptionally good. Um, so while it's certainly a limited number of titles, you're going to find a lot of really great stuff within that small library. So you
1: absolutely are. Yeah, yeah there's some and, great
0: titles here, and there's an introductory price of four dollars ninety nine per month. So like that's a good deal, I think. So good deal. Check that out. Yeah. Check out some of the shows that we've reviewed here on the show. You know, I think people have a good one. Uh, Simon, let's move on. What's the next movie we're talking about? I managed to duck out to the movies this week and see a little film called See How They Run.
1: Now, 2019's box office hit Knives Out gave the whole murder mystery chamber piece thing a bit of a shot in the arm. But the ensemble cast stylings of these stories never really went away. Case in point, Agatha Christie's stage production of The Mousetrap, which opened in London's West End in 1952 and ran continuously until the 16th of March 2020 when COVID took hold. And then it reopened again last year in May. Now, this lovely film, Tom George, you See How They Run, takes... A very meta kind of deep dive into the lives and motives of the cast and crew of the play not long after the production debuted to critical raves and sold-out audiences in post-war London. Its success has Hollywood calling with obnoxious American screenwriter Leo Koppenick, played by Adrian Brody, muscling his way into the personal and professional lives of the very British theatrical troupe to such an unwelcome extent that he suddenly finds himself recast as the victim. Hugh Grizzled Inspector Stoppard played by a very funny Sam Rockwell and perky Constable Stalker played by Saoirse Ronan who really steals the film. She's got such funny moments in this movie. Um, Who must now unravel the the myriad of motives and alibis of the usual suspects. Uh, The murder mystery narrative works just fine but See How They Run has just as much fun with its deconstruction of the genre with lots of knowing nods to the audience of many of them quite literal in some fourth wall tampering which goes on a bit in this film. Um, the result is occasionally laugh out loud funny there's two or three big guffaws to be had here but more often it plays at that kind of giddy pace and with a gleeful referential tone that leaves you a unconsciously grinning for almost the entire running time. It's such a sweet, funny film. Um, it gets very silly at times, almost Monty Python-ish, but uh, they bring it all together in a in an um, ending in an old mansion that just reeks of classic murder mystery, Agatha Christie-style storytelling, um, and it works a treat. It's called See How They Run in pretty wide release as we speak.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty keen to check this one out, and most it's of the advance buzz on it's been really very favourable. Been very good. Yeah. Simon, what are you up for next? In the way that we just talked about Interview with a Vampire, really taking full advantage of the trappings of premium TV, like that is a gorgeous looking show. And sorry, something I didn't say about it was if you think about Interview with a Vampire and you think about the TV shows that have followed in the years since, you had things like. Buffy, but then maybe more the spin off series Angel, which took a lot of the stylistic trappings of telling a story about a vampire in the modern age and a lot of flashbacks that felt very Interview with a Vampire-like. But you watch those programs and you definitely felt the small budgetness of all of them. Interview with a Vampire just blows that out of the water. Like it feels like a big budget, big streaming series. And boy, no, do you notice no, the difference.
1: No expenses being spared on the latest <laughs> raft of, of, you know, big budget, small screen entertainment. Some of the stuff looks beautiful at the moment.
0: Yeah, and like, it's a gorgeous looking show. So in a way, that is a big premium TV series. I'm now going to shift direction and talk about Panhandle, which Oops. is a very good looking TV series. But boy, is this one of the most traditional feeling TV shows I've seen in quite some time. And intentionally so. So this is a series, The I'll, I'll give you the log line on it, and then we'll sort of talk a bit more in depth. So the log line is, since personal tragedy struck five years ago, loquacious eccentric Bell Prescott hasn't left his rambling property on the Alapacha River that he shares with his mother. Basically, the actual premise of this you got this guy, Bell Prescott, his wife had been murdered, I think they say five years prior. But, oh, sorry, yeah, personal tragedy five years ago. Uh, But basically, he's uh, refused to leave his property. He gets uh, panic attacks if he tries leaving the um, fence line to get out. But he's also been trying to solve his wife's murder. And so he's got a little crime lab that is set up on the premises. And he's very much a... uh, There's this terrible trend of TV shows where you have people with some sort of a uh, mental sort of an issue where suddenly it gives them superpowers. Like it's autism as superpower okay yeah. you think about um shows like numbers is probably a really great example of this but yes. there's a whole bunch of detective shows that do that and boy do they piss me off like it really just denigrates everybody um who actually legitimately experiences um things like autism in life to various degrees i don't think yeah. i use the word spectrum anymore but you know it's suddenly, you know it is what it is so i think these tv shows are kind of hugely offensive This show, it never really quite sort of goes there exactly, but he's very much of the mould of a character from numbers. But the one to look at is he's very much Detective Monk. If you've seen that show Monk, he's a very Monk-type character. And what happens when you have a character like that? You team them up with somebody who's gone weekly adventures. And so in this, we've got a detective. Uh, She's essentially around the Appalachia River. There's not really a whole lot of crime that takes place. Uh, So basically, she spends her entire day going and issuing speeding tickets. So anyway, this is the first real crime that she's had to deal with, and she's not interested in doing it, to be completely frank. Uh, she doesn't really care about her job that much, and it's just a way to pay the bills and, um, you know, be able to support her young son. So you've got this sort of uh, mismatched odd couple of um, this detective named Cammy. You've got Belle Prescott, who's this sort of oddball guy. There's the mother that re- refuses to let him really leave his property hijinks are short to ensue as a dead body is found on his property and he has to be able to solve it and summon the inner strength to be able to leave his property and interview people to find out basically it's luke kirby playing an oddball uh wannabe detective you've got a cop who really should have some sort of detective capability who's just not interested in it, played by tiana okoy Uh, The two of them, I think, are a great pairing on screen. But you were watching this and you were like, I've seen Monk before. TV has moved beyond this now. I don't think we need another one of these sorts of shows in our lives. It's treading very familiar water on the Appalachia River. And quite frankly, I wasn't really there for it. But I will say Luke Kirby completely wasted in this. Like, he is such a charismatic screen presence. He's such an oddball dude. He should be doing something way better than this. And boys, he just, you know floating is, in the alopecia river
1: is this comfort food food viewing because i don't think but it's, monk it's not, sort of broke it's any new ground yeah like it's i think with films like si- shows like psych and monk and those sort of yeah. detective partnership stories they're not made to they're not meant to sort of reinvent the wheel but is is this just too much of a, a seen it before kind of feel
0: this is the thing. I've actually got no problem at all with the idea of comfort television and the sorts of shows which you don't necessarily need to lean forward to. You can just throw it on in the background and keep on watching it. Yeah. I don't tend to watch a lot of those shows myself. I like to be a bit more engaged, but I don't mind these shows existing. And I'll go back and watch older versions, this kind of thing. Like, I watch a fair bit of The Rockford Files and the occasional Murder, She Wrote and all sorts of <laughs> yeah, dumb things she, like man. that. And I don't mind doing that because they're older programs and they speak to a certain time where television was really fueled by a lot of that. But I don't necessarily need to see new versions of that. And I watch this and it just really feels so stale. And yeah. it just kind of feels like they're really just sort of treading water that's been tread many, many times before. And I just struggle to really find a way into this that engages me in any possible way. And this isn't the best example of one of these shows either. Like, it's fine. Production quality is really good. And you've got these two really great leads in it. But outside of that, I don't know there's not a lot, a lot happening here. I'm just not... It's a bit it. of
1: a shame because it's one of the the creatives on it is a guy called Nicholas Stoller. I uh, boo. Are oh, you not a fan? Because he's done some funny stuff along the way with forgetting Sarah Marshall and uh, it's, the it's, um, it's down downhill names. after Marshall.
0: Let's be real. <laughs>
1: Yeah, just actually looking up and down here there's not a lot there to get too excited about. Although having said that, he does have Bros coming out, which is one of the most buzzed about rom-com titles of the year with I mean, the, I would Billy I'd eichner. call it
0: Bros and not Bros because it's oh, not about Bros. the 1990s uh pop duo.
1: Well, god damn it, it should be. That would be a movie I'd go and see, especially <laughs> one starring Billy eichner That would be
0: good. Yeah, it's um about
1: it. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, maybe that's a missed opportunity for everyone involved. Okay all right i've got one more to talk about shall i jump straight into it
0: yeah right let's do that sorry sorry we should say panhandle streaming now on stand should you be so interested should you be interested
1: smile is the new film in wide release in cinemas you may have seen the uh marketing push of people going around grinning at you in public all week i'm surprised no one got their face punched in for doing that um Try telling non-horror types that the best horror films hold a mirror to society and or humanity and you'll get some variation of, (laughs) right. Horror movies exist to exploit and manipulate base fears, they'll say, that most just use loud noises and fake blood to give thrill-seekers an in-the-moment cinematic sugar high, that a key role of horror films is to disengage the brain and tap the instinctual, not the intellectual. And horror types know that sometimes that is true and are hugely grateful for it, but that some really great horror films are all also deeply insightful. Now, Parker Finn's smile has a foot strongly planted on both sides of the horror film Divide and emerges as one of the best of its kind in recent memory. You will shriek and shudder and cover your eyes as the very stylishly visual horrors unfold before you, but you'll also be drawn into the story of a woman facing off against an evil entity that metaphorically addresses the debilitating impact of depression and cyclical trauma. The terrific saucy bacon play psychotherapist rose cotter a principled young woman who has foregone profitable private practice to offer aid to those in underfunded community mental health care now her mourning is upended when a frantic patient played by australia's own caitlin stacy who we've seen on the poster grinning back at us starts screaming at her that she can't escape people hideously grinning in her direction one horribly bloody moment of self-harm later rose is now faced with nightmares of her own as the toothy entity starts manifesting in the most terrifying ways possible so the essence of the writer director Finn's narrative is in Cotter's backstory which is revealed to be one rife with family trauma and untreated mother-daughter issues in a lesser genre work such undercurrents would be hinted at but then jettisoned in favor of the ghoulish byproduct of such sadness but Smile is a work that spells out very clearly the ties that bind the horrors of the past with the persons we are today. Specifically, um, it speaks to the shocking statistics that indicate suicide begat suicide, that those impacted by loved ones who killed themselves are then cursed to carry the burden of crippling, sometimes fatal pain. So some may balk at the use of severe mental health issues as the crux of a story that presents outwardly as a supernatural thriller but genre fans know that horrors real and imagined can share the same space and smile provides a smart sad shocking argument for that cause so um it's a terrific film um get along to see smile
0: yeah uh the reason i do it is to go and see caitlin stacy and that's just an opportunity As Simon, we segue towards our middle bit. So, Caitlin Stacey, she starred in a US drama series. Well, it was a drama comedy, probably more leaning on the comedy, half-hour series called Bridge and Tunnel. Now, I reviewed that on the show just a couple of weeks ago because season two came back, and I thought, you know, let's do a bit of a deep dive into this show. Anyway, lo and behold, got cancelled.
1: That was time wasted, wasn't it, really? Now that it's gone... Don't bother listening.
0: Okay, first of all, I really hate the idea that, oh, it's a cancelled show, therefore I will never watch it because, you know, what's the <laughs> well, point? Shows resolve, like, it's, it's fine. It's about the journey. This brings
1: us to the, the notion of our middle bit, which I think is a really interesting one. You want to go with this?
0: Oh, yeah, I guess so. So, basically, Simon and I were talking about the cancellation of Bridge and Tunnel, and for those of you who don't know it, Half Hour Dramedy, it's by Edward Burns, who people remember you know, from the 90s, uh, writer, director of the series, and also used to appear as, like, one of the supporting characters in it. Yep. I uh, had Australia's Caitlin Stacy and other people that I don't really know. So anyway, I enjoyed the program. I don't think it's a great TV show by any means, but it was certainly an enjoyable half hour. And TV is filled with these enjoyable half hour TV shows that I kind of think just sort of fall by the wayside. Like, there's some shows which are zeitgeisty, big hit shows, or they're based mm. on IP, and we all know those shows are around. But there's so many TV shows that people have just never really heard of before, or maybe you've just heard of once or twice, never really checked out. It's basically just this, you go across a TV, uh, you can't go across a schedule anymore, but you know, you flip left to right on your various streaming services. There's show after show after show that are actually maybe kind of interesting, but you just don't know them.
1: You're absolutely right. We we sort of came around to this idea. I came up with the idea that shows like Freaks and Geeks and My So Called Life and Police Squad are these shows which didn't find any audience. Some critics certainly loved them, but didn't find any audience first time around. But became hits later on. Um, and that is even that's magnified even more now by what you're saying that there's so much to choose from now. You've really got to dig deep um and hopefully stumble across something that you really really love so what we're going to do with this middle bit is maybe throw some names at you about shows that you won't have heard of or maybe not have heard of but um you should try and catch before they disappear
0: i mean also the thing is i'd like to say that these shows aren't necessarily the critically lauded shows these are just kind of interesting shows that we've stumbled across ourselves that are Mm -hmm. interesting half hours and you talk about shows like Freaks and Geeks and uh, Police Squad. These are shows where the critics have It makes its way out of lists of the, you know, brilliant but cancelled. Yeah. None of these shows that we're going to talk about are brilliant but cancelled. They're just probably cancelled.
1: <laughs> exactly right. One out of two ain't bad. And Cop yeah. Squad. Oh, what was Cop Rock? Remember Cop Rock by Stephen Botchko?
0: Well, I mean, I know of it because it's a joke and constantly, you know, in pop culture about how terrible it was.
1: A musical police procedural, but I digress. We should stick to the middle bit and go and check out Cop Rock on your favourite YouTube channel anytime soon.
0: So my list here, I've only got half hour shows. I tried to oh. emulate the experience of Bridge and Tunnel as much as possible in terms of mm. coming up with my list. I don't know what you've come up with, Simon. Nothing? Nothing. Is this an all-dance segment? Is that where we are talking about here? This is an all-dance
1: segment. Oh yes, so I'll just crap. weigh in with wisdom.
0: Okay. So I've broken this down into a couple of the streaming services we've got here in Australia is to, you know, make it easy to find shows. Sure. So first I loaded up the stand and the shows that I'd probably recommend checking out that fall into this half hour. You know what? These are pretty good. You could have a couple of days on the couch watching through all this and have a great time and maybe forget it, but maybe it'll be one of these indelible shows that kind of stick with you. So... The first one I've got here is a show called Run the World. This is a series probably best described as a African-American sex in a city. Okay. Uh, I I did review it on this show, I think it was, unless it was the previous podcast I did. I'm not too sure.
1: You did mention it, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Basically, what I find kind of a bit interesting about this is that it's for African-American women, and all of them kind of come from a... Um, sense of they're not necessarily wealthy but they certainly have money around them and uh, have strong ties to academia which I think is a fairly unusual position to find a series about African American women sort of positioned around Mm -hmm. so they kind of really sort of have a unique voice there's one character in the middle uh, one episode in the middle of the first season with Rosie O'Donnell in it ignore that episode it is fucking terrible it's a really bad half hour of TV (laughs) but the rest of it all pretty good
1: all right okay yeah. and is that is that surviving is that still has so, that got a has that so been this picked is an up for interesting a one
0: it's an interesting one in that it's going to a second season okay mm-hmm. but the woman in her and i forgot to write down her name but there's an actress in her who she has a shaved head in the series she is also the actor who they tend to trot out a fair bit to nude up So she's suddenly very noticeable in the series. But in between the first and second season, they came back for the second season of production. She refused to abide by the COVID protocols. And so they let Mm. her go from the series. Now, I'm actually really apprehensive about what the second season of Run the World looks like because she was the best thing about the first season. It's not just the nudity, although it helps. Uh... But, like, she is such a charismatic, just compelling screen presence. The character was, I think, incredibly solid and interesting. And I was pretty much watching the show for this character. And without her, I don't know how the show is really moving forward. But It's on Stan. What's it called? It's called Run the World.
1: Run the World on Stan is one to watch before it disappears. What's up next? Uh,
0: Rami, which is one of these sort of critically lauded shows that most people haven't gotten across. Yep. And I kind of cool. do feel that when you hear about what the show, have you seen Rami? I know of it, and I've but seen you a couple of episodes, right? but no, I haven't watched yeah. much of it, no. Okay, so it's one of these shows, it's got a Muslim man as the lead character. The critics are loving it, and so immediately when that stuff starts happening, I think that a lot of general audiences are like, I'm just going to give that a miss. It seems a little bit sort of too um, high-minded or a little bit sort of self-important. But the series. He,
1: he was nominated for, didn't he, wasn't he nominated for a Golden Globe or an Emmy? Yeah, or something but last again, year like got, that
0: sort of stuff sort of stems from the idea that, oh, this show is important, therefore we need to nominate this sort of person. But okay. let me just tell you about episode, I think, three or four of the series. So the show works very much in the mode of a show like Louis, for example. Okay. Okay, where it's, you know, every cool. week there's like another story. It's sort of a very um, tonally, it's a little bit sort of dark and a little bit sort of inward looking. Uh, But much like Louis, after that show got a bit more experimental, Rimey kind of gets right into it from one of the early episodes, and it just becomes a flashback to an experience he had as a teenage boy on September 11, 2001. I'm not sure if you remember what may have happened on that day, but in Rami's world, he masturbates for the first time and then suddenly finds that there's a mass terror event and inextricably the two events are linked in his mind and he kind of feels responsible as though God was telling him off for the body adventures he may have had that morning. <laughs> anyway, like that's the sort of thing that you're finding in Rami. It's kind of really sort of unique stories into, you know, his world and how his um Fears and loves and guilt, all sort of tie into him being a complicated, interesting person. It's very funny. It's very offbeat. I think well worth a look. Uh, something, And I'm going to talk now about a show called Casual, which you can find on Stan, but also on Netflix yeah, sure and maybe some stand. other platforms. Casual is a series. It was the first, well, one of the very first Hulu originals. I think it debuted roughly around the same time as Handmaid's Tale. Uh, obviously, one of those went on to great global success and the other one's yes. called Casual. uh basically it's a comedy with um oh gosh i really should have written down some names but you know we'll just barrel ahead basically the premise of this one is it's an adult brother and sister and i've got a younger sister as well no sorry it's the daughter the woman she's got a young daughter who's a teenager and then the brother comes and moves in with them uh the mother's found herself newly single after she's um broken up with her um, ex-husband who's still kind of around but not really but she's re-entering the dating scene But the sort of gimmick with this one is that the brother runs a dating app. And so he sees life as just like a series of interludes rather than actually finding a long-term companion. And she's sort of been burned by the idea of like long-term companionship. And so it's basically him reintroducing her to the world of dating. And it's possibly the worst person in the world to introduce someone into the world of dating. Uh, The show, it's uh, Michaela Watkins is the female lead. Oh, okay. Yes. Very good. Anyway, it's very funny, uh, it's very heartwarming at times, and the further you get into the series, the darker you get into the series, and it stops being the sort of very uh, comedically driven premise, and instead becomes a little bit more about how both of these two went through some very messed up situations when they were young kids as a result of their parents, and it's about how it sort of shaped them as the people they are today it's a really engaging series but you need to get past those first couple of sort of sitcomies hype episodes to find your way into what the series is really doing Uh, the final season of it does a time jump and so uh they sort of play around with some ideas of what's happening in the future uh basically i think we've actually probably passed where that time jump is now so we're watching the past which is the future (laughs) so it's like watching the jetsons at this point uh but anyway give that a look minx Is a show, it's an HBO Max original, which is streaming here on Stan. Uh, This is a series set in the 70s about a ardent feminist who's very much a Diane Chambers from Cheers type of character. She is looking to launch her own magazine, which is uh, preaching her feminist ideals. She gets tied up in the world of 1970s magazine pornography with a guy who decides to take her very pure idea about feminism and put in lots of pictures of uh, nude dudes. And so this is a series with a lot of new dudes and a lot of feminist ideology. It's very funny. And, you know, I, I think people have a grand time. Should watch.
1: I thought that came out of the blocks pretty strongly and had a, quite a big audience. Um, Not really, a though. a lot of press coverage. But, yeah, no. apparently it hasn't really really done well. Although he's back for a second season by all accounts. So that's
0: yeah, yeah, certainly did well enough for that. But I don't think broadly audiences really latched on to it as much as they probably should have.
1: Yeah. I I have got a couple that I want to mention very quickly. I it's been cancelled and I don't think it ever found the audience it should, and that was um uh was it Don't F with Kevin,
0: the the uh, uh well how about we stick platforms a platform before we start just oh, okay, sure. in random yeah, so things. Right. Yeah, geez. Uh okay, so I'm gonna finish out Stan. So Ghosts, the UK version of the series, uh this is a couple that bought like an old rundown house or no, sorry, they've inherited it and they move in there and suddenly find there's a whole bunch of ghosts that the girl is able to see but her partner can't see them anyway they're all from different walks of life shenanigans are sure to ensue Uh, check that out i don't like the american version very much but you know it is what it is and i want to recommend back which is the latest david mitchell and robert webb series Uh, the two of them if you've ever seen peep show you know the kind of humor you're up to and they play kind of similar kind of characters david mitchell in it's a very repressed guy who has trouble dealing with his family robert webb is a guy who's a con man who has uh claimed that he's uh, he, he's from, okay so david mitchell's family is a family that took in a lot of um children to like live with them for short periods of time and so he claims that he's one of these children and that the patriarch of the family who's just died and instigated at the beginning of the series was a really important figure in his life Anyway, he's really charismatic and everyone loves him, even though he's clearly a piece of a shit person and he's just like using and abusing everyone. Anyway, comedy very much ensues from this one. I think it's a, it's a strong contender. Uh, Disney Plus has a show called The Trophy Wife, which is a it's very sitcom-y. Uh, it's got Bradley Whitford as a guy that ends up marrying a woman who's quite a bit younger than he is, uh, the titular Trophy Wife. Anyway, he's got three ex-wives, sorry, two other ex-wives that regularly sort of play a role in their lives. One of them played by the aforementioned Michaela Watkins. Anyway, this show, it goes from being a very sort of sitcom-y sort of premise pilot, to just being a pretty good sitcom, generally across the board. But the person I would point to is the child, and it's this kid named Bert. Child actors are the worst things in the world. I cannot stand them in any TV show, except in this one. I think Bert is a singularly just amazing character. But anyway... Check out The Trophy Wife. It's streaming on Disney+. Plus. Uh, on Binge, I want to recommend Mrs. Fletcher, which is a half-hour series. Uh, it's about a woman whose uh, teenage son is off to university for the first time. Uh, probably the only time, I'm guessing. Uh, he's a bit of a jock, and so he's struggling to fit in at university where people are a little bit more woke and a bit more well put together than he is. But she suddenly finds herself with a whole lot of time by herself, and so she develops an interest in pornography. Uh, okay. It's, it's basically about a woman coming to terms with trying to find out who she is and how she exists in a world that's kind of uh, passed by. Making or watching? Uh, watching. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, it's not like Minx. She's just a <laughs> consumer, like okay. all of us. Not of pornography, necessarily. You know, we're just all consumers. Sure. Of <laughs> Moving on. Dave. Uh, Dave is a very funny sitcom that stars a rapper named Lil Nicky. Uh, not Lil Nicky. Lil Dicky. Uh, and it's basically, much like Rami, a sort of Louie-style comedy where this character sort of making his way through the world. Probably a bit more infused with curvier enthusiasm than Louie. It's probably the That's thing. Plus. Yeah. Um, I don't think the first episode or two are particularly that great, but once you sort of get past them, you get into some very unique uh, storytelling. Little Dicky has... Um, oh, gosh, how do I even say this? Uh, he's named Little Dickie for a reason.
1: Oh, Tiny yeah.
0: P. Anyway, there's a very interesting episode that involves a fantasy that he has with a hole cut into a doorway <laughs> and his very forgiving girlfriend. <laughs> Moving oh, on, Bored this. to Death, which is an HBO half-hour comedy. This one yes. people may remember. I do, um, yeah. With just feels to me like a show that people have forgotten about. and I think people should go back and check it out. So it's Jason Schwartzman as a guy who his girlfriend just left him, and he decides he's going to put an ad in a local, uh, on Craigslist, I think, from memory. Mm. And it's basically, he decides he's going to become a private detective. So he's an unlicensed private detective, which is illegal. And basically, it's him going out into the world and solving people's mysteries. So it's very much infused with like a. Um, Think about, like, the long good night mixed in with um, every dopey stoner comedy that you've seen ever. (laughs) Basically, he really enjoys getting stoned and solving mysteries. Uh, He's got a occasional boss, played by Ted Danson, who really enjoys getting stoned. Uh, And then there's also uh, Galifianarchus... What's his name? Um, Zach Galifianakis. Zach Galifianakis, yeah. In a pre-Hangover uh, role where he enjoys... Uh, well, actually, I don't think he really gets stoned as much as the other two, but uh, he's certainly got some stuff going on. Anyway, it's a very charming half-hour comedy. It's very There's How to Make Funny. It in America, another half-hour comedy, which is about two guys who are in the fashion industry. What's kind of interesting about this is that there are two street hustlers involved in fashion. But when you think about fashion, it's never really through the viewpoint of like two street dudes. And so, like, it's a bit of a unique perspective on this. Like, you just don't really see that as a story. Um, Crashing, another half-hour comedy. This is about a guy who comes from a very Christian upbringing that enters the world of stand-up comedy. And it's about a guy starting out at the very beginning of comedy, hustling on the streets to get people to come to his uh, shows where, you know, there'll be three people in the audience. And it's about him, watching him grow his career over a couple of seasons till it gets cancelled. And then finally, I want to mention Hello, Ladies which is Stephen Merchant, one of the co-creators of the UK office, and it's him in Los Angeles trying to meet women. Anyway, it's very funny because he's looking for love in all the wrong places with all the wrong intentions.
1: <laughs> wow, that's a great lineup of of, of uh, unwatched great television. Into so, the mix, I might throw baskets uh, with, with the, the aforementioned Zach Galifianakis. I'd certainly throw Don't F with Kevin, which I think is on Amazon as we speak. It never found the audience that... And I don't, think it, I don't think it ever quite found the tone that it was looking for, but it did have I, some very funny moments.
0: I always thought that had a lost premise. Like, I think yeah. the premise made sense maybe five, ten years ago and just came too late for what it is.
1: Yeah, I think you might be right. Um, one, of the great un, one of my favourite great unwatched comedy shows was Party Down with Adam Scott and a great bunch of comedians as well, which um, I think ran for, ran for two seasons, maybe and three. And it's coming back. And he's coming back, so I'm looking forward to that. But your coverage was amazing. I'll try and put as many of those up on our Facebook page as a little list after this podcast goes live so you can reference back to that. So, Dan Barrett, excellent middle bit. Well done. I knew you'd bring the the big guns out for that.
0: Well, you told me I had to. Yes. Okay, Simon, what are we doing now? This is what else have you been watching.
1: Now, I'm going to lead off here because after having... My uh, Facebook and social media feed just fill up with opinions about the new Netflix series Dharma. I thought I'd weigh into it. Now, you and I have got very sort of firm opinions about what you referred to during the week. And it's a term that I agree with called misery porn. Um, we didn't want to review the new Bali miniseries here on, on Australian television um, for that reason. I hated the film Hotel Mumbai for that reason. And I'm cautious of why I was very cautious of weighing in on Dharma. Um, It is a Ryan Murphy joint, and you and I have both been very vocal in our dislike of certain Ryan Murphy projects of recent years. Now, Murphy was the man behind uh, American Crime Story OJ, um, which I thought was very good. But then he started creating some works that were kind of high camp, very exploitative, and that's, why, that's where I came to Dharma. Why are they remaking this story? Why are they telling this story? What needs to be done? Yes, you, you have to sort of consider um, uh, victim trauma in this sort of situation as well. So I wade into Dharma very cautiously. The first episode is directed by a great filmmaker, pardon me, in Carl Franklin. He did Devil in a Blue Dress. He's done some great films over the year. And he brings a real cinematic quality to the first Uh, episode of dharma um now i've got to say i'm now five episodes in and i am hooked by the way they are telling this story it has made me realize that ryan murphy very much sort of wallows in uh, i guess the milieu wallows in the, the 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 very small um thematic moments of his material um that can be very big on screen, like it was in OJ, like it was in Versace, and that's maybe where the campness comes from. In Dharma, everything is shut in grays, browns, deep reds, of course. Um, and in that regard, it tones down what I've come to sort of understand as Ryan Murphyisms. Um, dharma may be the best work that he's been involved with maybe because he's not involved with it that much most of the scripts for this are his with someone else he doesn't direct any of these um certainly not the first five i've seen to date um and it it shows in very ryan murphy way how close they were to capturing this individual um on many occasions but due to you know incompetent police work or set of circumstances that didn't happen so um it doesn't reduce the horrors of his crime it shows that and it doesn't tr- it certainly doesn't try to um offer any kind of pat explanation as to why it happened but it shows the sort of character dharma was and it's um yeah it's a bit fascinating bit of television I, i'm i can't turn away at this stage
0: yeah and look that, I'm and that ki-
1: surprises me that surprises me because like i said you and i aren't you know don't like these kind of modern history retellings just for the sake of a streaming content um but i think this one sort of feels a little bit different maybe a little bit more important
0: yeah i think the thing that really sort of i don't know it's true crime and it rankles me for the same reason i don't really like most true crime things which is that it's reveling in just other people's misery and i feel really just sort of squeamish (laughs) engage us sort
1: of yeah thing. you know and and and, w- and we have discussed this before and i completely get that point of view and, and 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 respect that point of view by that thinking we don't have peter laurie in m we don't have bonnie and clyde we don't have um charlie's there in monster we don't have some of the great bits of cinema and by you know by television as well um, by association so i think it's Artists interpreting the society around them can take a very dark outlook and if it's not respectful to the victims and no matter how these sort of films of and, and projects are done, there's going to be people ex- who exactly feel like that and I totally respect it. But, so um, I, just,
0: I just want to sort of establish that and I'm actually more thinking about sort of recent true crime where it really is like a rip from the headline style thing. So I actually don't mind something which is a bit more introspective and... Mm-hmm is looking at back at something. So, like, Bonnie and Clyde, I think, is probably not a great example because it's not like Bonnie and Clyde were around in the 70s when that film was made. Like, that was very much a period piece going back. One of my favourite films is Zodiac, which I think has, you know... 45 years between the film coming out from when the Zodiac Killer was out and about. So mm. to me, like, that's enough time to be respectful and have some actual insights or offer into what was happening in the world at that point. But it's something which is really just, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, which is what, like mid-90s? Yeah, it's
1: 30 years. I mean, it's... a it's oh, 25. And it and, and also sort of makes me consider, is this, is this the nature of the the art form that we're looking at now because bookshops are align with stories about, you know, these sort of things. Is this yeah, just the immersive shops, nature? Of, yeah, exactly. Is it just yeah. the immersive nature, the visual nature of, of what this represents that, that makes it, that, that creates these sort of really interesting debates about it? So you know it's out there if you want to watch it. I can, I can certainly recommend it as a, a fine bit of television. Whether you want to indulge
0: in this kind of darkness um, is entirely up to you. Okay, so I'm going to talk about something which is just a little bit sort of offbeat. So uh, I mentioned on a podcast recently I've been doing a Mad Men rewatch. Yes. So there's an episode in season six of Mad Men, it's called The Crash. And this is a very memorable episode where. Everyone's feeling just a little bit um, like they're going through the motions. No one's really got a huge amount of energy. So one of the new partners at the ad agency decides that he's going to get his doctor to come along with what's a... I mean, it makes no real sense as to how this is even a thing. But this doctor comes along and he's offering everybody a kind of like a B12 shot. Okay. To give them a bit more sort of spring in their step.
1: Like so, with the mango.
0: There's, there's movement, there's movement. Yeah, like a little bit. So I mean, I don't know how much movement <laughs> is taking place with each of these characters, but they are certainly, you know, um, looking to get juiced. So anyway, basically they go into this thing and there's a moment where, and this is a plot convention sort of a thing. So there's a moment where one of the um, guys from the agency is standing there with the doctor and he's like, what's in this shot? And it's like, oh, well, it's a proprietary um, thing. And he just kind of waves away the issue and doesn't really go any further into it, which I kind of love because it's basically the writers saying, look, we've got to have a fun time with this episode. Just, you know, don't think about the details too much. But essentially what happens is everybody gets this shot and everyone just starts acting a little bit loopy. And there's this amazing scene where Don Draper, I, you know, anti-hero in the series, steps out of his office and is talking to this guy, Ken Cosgrove, who's one of the like main sales guys. So anyway, he's like there, And he's recently just been involved in an accident where um, he was out with some clients and now he's getting around with a cane. But the two of them are very much strung out on this thing that's being injected into their behinds. And so he's talking to him, and for some reason, Ken starts doing, like, the sort of tap dance routine in front. So he's got the cane, because he's having trouble walking around, and it's basically him just tap dancing in front of him, and the two of them don't really exchange any words. But, like, that's just kind of it. And then, like, the scene ends with him sort of turning around and just walking off. It's a fun little scene, but every time I see it, there's a thing with this episode that came out, it aired in May 2013. The same thing that was happening around in terms of pop culture at the time, was to release this Daft Punk album and some very clever person on the internet decided to take one of the tracks from that Daft Punk album and just layer it over the top of this scene from Mad Men. So anytime I sit down to watch this episode now, indelibly, it's just linked. And so I just expect (laughs) it to be Daft Punk coming in over the top. And it's a very funny scene as it exists at the moment. But boy, does that scene sing absolutely with the daft punk track over the top of it wow remember the
1: daft punk resurgence and it probably had a lot to do with this this moment you talk of for mad uh, Man, look and the, 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 the album Mark was album. pretty huge they the also they, they scored the um uh the tron remake as well they were part of that so it was a this would have been after that though wouldn't it like that after, tron remake was late 2000s oh no into the 2010s but yeah around this time i would have thought yeah i'm pretty 15. sure this can't was after believe that's that. long ago yeah all right so the mad men episode i'm now going to check out i don't remember the daft punk mad men mashup i'm going to have a look at that on youtube oh, well, that first like of
0: all fun. watch the episode so it's a season six episode called the Crush." okay mm-hmm. but then afterwards load up just type in mad men and daft punk and you're going to find it or mad men oh, and okay. dance sequence or whatever like it's compelling <laughs>
1: Ah, this week on Save the Date, there's some important dates very uh, near to us. We're not jumping too far ahead. October 19 to 30, the Adelaide Film Festival kicks off, uh, returning to cinemas for the first time after COVID. Uh, a lot of interesting films there. I'll actually be in Adelaide for the second week. We'll be doing an Adelaide Live Cross for our podcast, Dan. Haven't discussed that with you. Probably should have. October 22. Sorry, are, we,
0: are we going to talk about movies and TV, or is this like your serial killing venture? Oh, this is just me and um, finding where to buy the best barrels in Adelaide. Yeah, good move.
1: October twenty-two. October 22 Cinema Nova is uh, down in Melbourne is screening I should say Australia My Home and Albanian Migration this is the story of three generations of Albanian migrants directed by a young filmmaker named Stephen Kastrisios who's uh, one of our finest sort of independent filmmakers that's October 22 at Cinema Nova and then November 27 at 1215 up in your neck of the woods Daniel at the GOMA the Queensland Art Gallery of Modern Art boy that's catchy um, the Cook, the Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. This is Peter Greenaway's masterpiece from, I want to say, late 80s, maybe early 90s. Um, and I remember watching this and just be blown away back in the day when this kind of independent cinema did play on our screen. So good on Gomo for Goma for, uh, for screening this Peter Greenaway classic.
0: All right, Simon, this day in, oh, sorry, this week in history, So I'm going to kick this off, because I like this one. October 2nd, Mm. 1959, the commencement of one, The Twilight Zone, which was Rod Serling's anthology series. That one premiered on CBS television. Still an amazing piece of
1: television. It was on October 3, 1992, that Sinead O'Connor, ripped up a picture of Pope John Paul II on Saturday Night Live. Now, the theory was that during rehearsal, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, it was some other image that she had, she was doing some other uh, corporate sort of put down, but lo- on live television she did a picture of the Pope um, and the kickback she has never really recovered from. It was uh, an extraordinary moment in TV history.
0: Absolutely. I often think about that. Like, if she did that in 2022, I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be Pope John Paul II, and that'd be a bit outdated. But if it was a modern-day picture of the Pope, I don't think she would have received anywhere near that blowback.
1: Really? The internet yeah, would have so. exploded with that sort of stuff.
0: Oh, the internet might be talking about it, but I don't think it would have been with the vitriol. I think that the world has become a lot more secular since the yeah. early 90s.
1: Yeah, it was an incredible time. And you'd see on screen that she was just committed
0: to it, but completely rattled by it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned great television in regards to the Twilight Zone, maybe even a greater show. Uh, October 4, 1990, saw the US premiere of one, Beverly Hills 90210.
1: Oh, rest in peace, Joey Tata. That was only a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Owner of the Peach Pit. Yeah. October 6, 1927, I remember being there for the premiere of The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson. It was the first film with a live soundtrack, and with a soundtrack, I should say, and was awarded an honorary Oscar in 1928 for the uh, groundbreaking audio work on it. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. <laughs>
0: So Simon strings together a couple of names that have people with birthdays this week and he's got some sort of common thread going through it. Simon, who are your people? And then I'm going to give my suggestion as to what wins them all.
1: Okay, now this is our Birthday Buddies quiz. If you go to our Facebook page, you will see photos of these four people and they all have something in common. This is the quiz that Dan is going to try to answer. October 3, Thor Tessa Thompson. October 4, Alicia Silverstone. October, also October four, Rachel Lee Cook, who we remember from She's All That, and October five, Australia's own Guy Pearce. Now, what could be the theme? What could be the the uh, point of fact
0: that all of these people encompass? I don't have a clue. I'm just going to suggest they all played Batgirl at one stage.
1: Who'll <laughs> ever forget Guy Pearce as Batgirl? Exactly. No, in fact, all these people are linked because they've all featured very heavily and very famously. In music videos. Huh? See what I did there? This is a tough one. Not an easy one. Alicia Silverstone. She was the Aerosmith girl. She, she, what made her famous? She was in
0: film clips like Crying and Amazing. Tessa Thompson released her well, own Alicia single. Silverstone was in that music video that also had Liv Tyler in it. Yeah, that was the Aerosmith one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, all Aerosmith. Alicia Silverstone came on the scene as the, the Aerosmith girl. Tessa Thompson uh, released her own Uh, single back in 2014 called get your life she's also featured in quite a few for for jay-z and janelle Monet along the way okay uh guy pierce also released his own music video in 2014 took him a while to get
0: this feels like a bit of a stretch now we're talking about the fact that they became famous because of music videos no no, no. guy pierce's music video from 2014 not a stretch, not a stretch, because
1: Guy Pearce was also in the Radiohead music video for the song "Follow Me Around" just last yeah, year, twenty twenty one.
0: Twenty twenty one. What? Yeah, you know this Guy is true. has been this around a little bit before then, right? You're aware of this?
1: I've been. He'd never done, according to the IMDC, IMDb source, he'd never done a a music video prior to his own one in twenty fourteen, and then Radiohead last year. And Rachel Lee Cook. Now she <laughs> appeared in a.
0: Again, I drive you. So the fact, the premise of this is became famous through being in music videos.
1: No, not not became famous. Featured in. Oh, that they featured, just have not be in a music video. They'd been in a music video at some point. And Rachel Lee Cook, yes, she was in Sixpence, None the Richer, um, which was from the She's All That movie in which she played famously Lainey Boggs, but she'd also been um, in the Newfound Glory clip Dressed to Kill and for Khalid in the Young Dumb and Broke video, which was quite famous all those years ago in 2017. So all these people have appeared in music videos.
0: I feel I could have answered that with they've all been on screen at some point in their careers and no, been just as well. There's a very specific
1: point to these quizzes, and the new one will be up first thing on Monday morning for those of you to guess at. It's become a huge hit. We've got dozens of people weighing in on our weekly birthday quiz.
0: I I don't know how to process any of this. (laughs) All contest podcasting. Yep i definitely feel challenged hey folks thank you very much for listening to screen watching my name is dan barrett you can find me on twitter at the dan barrett sorry we're ending the podcast uh you can start your day with my free newsletter it's called always be watching find that one at alwaysbewatching.com. uh it's got the biggest tv sorry the biggest stories in tv streaming and film and on fridays obviously there's the always be streaming newsletter and that recounts the big shows that launched that very gosh darn week
1: must read i start my morning every i start my day every morning with your newsletter simon ah uh, i'm on the twitter at simon r foster i just read my name then uh read my words over at screen space dot net visit the screen watching facebook page at screen watching podcast and check out our screen watching youtube channel where there's uncut interviews and fresh trailers up most days
0: damn Follow screen-watching via your favourite podcast app. Load it up now and hit the follow button. Outro music.
1: <laughs> I've never actually read my own name before. That's very weird. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a uh, a fun time. Boy, next week the controversy kicks on even further. We'll be reviewing Don't Worry Darling and um, discussing whether Harry Styles did in fact spit on Chris Pine. But we won't know latest. that.
0: Like, there's nothing we can do to verify that. Like We're not I'm detectives.
1: Gonna, I've been studying the footage ever since. And uh, I don't know. I don't think he did. Maybe it came out of his nose. I'm not sure.
0: Can I, can I just say, yep. as all the controversy built up around that film... My yes. engagement with that movie became less and less to the point where I really could not give a shit about that film at this point now.
1: Wow, that's a big call because it's an interesting bit of work. i, I It's a full, uh, well, I'll, into my review next week. I'm almost the other way. I'm sorry that all that controversy has been there because it's overshadowing the fact that it's a pretty good movie, but... Um, I'm not talking about yes. the fact
0: there should be the controversy. I'm saying the fact is it exists and it's completely mm. diminished my interest in the film. Box
1: office in the US would suggest that it, I don't know whether it's had no impact or maybe it's bolstered what might have been a dud film, but it 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 came in at about twenty two million in its opening weekend, which was sort of in in line with expectations. I mean, it's no Avatar. Don't get
0: well, me. What I was going to say, like globally, it was not the number one film that week. What well, was Daniel? I believe that would be James Cameron's two thousand and nine masterpiece <laughs> called Avatar. <laughs> Did you get your invite for the screening this week? Not the sequel. Sequel screening? Not. Huh. Really, I'm just messing am just. I was going to say, no. like, it, seems very, it seems very early to be doing press screenings for it. No, 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 no. I've got it on VHS here. I'll just watch it later here. What, The Way of Water? The Way of Water on, on VHS, yeah. On Betamax. Uh, I've got it on Video CD. <laughs> As James Cameron intended us to see it. By anyway, way. folks, this has been screenwashing. We're out of here. Folks, we'll see you next week.